Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we will uh, dive in. So, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, your grace and mercy. Thank you for uh, the gift of uh, mothers, that uh, whether uh, we are a mother or um, want to be a mother, all of us have a mother, and, uh, and so we're grateful for the gift uh, that you have uh, given to us in that, and uh, grateful for this time for us to gather together and hopefully to be edified and encouraged as we consider uh, your word this morning, as we pray, as we uh, meet with brothers and sisters, and so uh, as we get to celebrate a baptism uh, after services. And so we're grateful for your grace and mercy that you're a good Father who gives good gifts. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we've been talking about covenants, which are uh, God's uh, response to sin. They are His gracious, divine response to human sin. God could have simply destroyed us uh, and judged us and, and condemned us as a result of our sin, but instead, God enters into covenants with mankind. So we've been walking through these covenants, and this week we get to the resolution of all of those covenants, but first, let's kind of walk through those covenants. And so... Tell me, where did we begin? What was the first covenant that we discussed? The Adamic covenant, the covenant that God makes uh, with creation or, or with Adam. And then after that, what was the next one? The Noahic covenant. Again, uh, if this is kind of the creation of a covenant with all of mankind, the Noahic is kind of the reconfirmation of the covenant with uh, mankind. And then it begins to get more specific, and it's not mankind in general, but it's with a particular people. And so the next covenant that we saw was the Abrahamic. I'll just write Abe. And then after that, what was the next one? Mosaic, the covenant that God makes with his people Israel uh, in the wilderness there at, uh, at Sinai, and then after that, last week we saw the, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that there would be a, uh, a kingly uh, descendant from uh, David who would uh, ultimately fulfill all of these. And so what we see in all of these actually is this, all of them are pointing toward this resolution that we're talking about today. Uh, in, the, uh, in the new covenant that is uh, inaugurated uh, by Jesus and that we are co-heirs with him in this, uh, this covenant. And so one of the things that we've talked about is this aspect of narrowing as we've, uh, as we've looked at these. I realize this now looks weird because everything else I wrote out. But uh, as we've looked at each of these, there is this uh, intentional narrowing in, uh, in the covenants. So we see in the Adamic covenant that, uh, that this fulfillment is going to ultimately come through one who is a man uh, or a human, uh, if you will. And so it's a covenant that's made with humanity. In the Noahic covenant, we see this kind of narrowing where the promise is going to go specifically through the line of uh, Shem. That's why the uh, Jews are historically called Semitic, is because of this relationship with one of Noah's uh, children, uh, Shem. Uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, we see not only is it uh, the Semitic peoples in general, but the people of Israel uh, in particular, that it has to be a Jew who's going to fulfill all of these promises. In the uh, Mosaic covenant, that it has to be a, uh, a citizen of the nation of Israel that has to prefer perfectly fulfill the law, which is going to really narrow things down. In the Davidic covenant, you're going to see that it has to be of the royal lineage 
uh, of David. And so earlier in the story, we saw it's from Judah, uh, the tribe of Judah, and then now it's narrowing even further to the particular family of David. And so by the time you get to the New Testament, all of this narrowing has kind of uh, condensed into this singular person who is able to fulfill all of these covenants, and that is Jesus Christ. So by the time you get to the New Testament, it's kind of this idea there can be only one who would ultimately fulfill all of these promises that are pointed to in all of these covenants. And, uh, and so he is kind of this remnant. And so you have this remnant theology throughout the Old Testament where there's always this remnant of Israel, but when you get to the New Testament, you see really there is a remnant of one. There's really only one who is chosen. There's really one who is elect. There's really only one who is the remnant, the one who is the faithful heir, the one who is the faithful offspring, the one to whom all of these promises are pointing, and the one in whom all of them are going to be accomplished. So I want to begin just by talking about why this new covenant is necessary. Why is it necessary that there be this new covenant and not simply these five covenants that we see uh, articulated in the uh, in the Old Testament, and so to really understand why there is this necessity of this new covenant, you really have to understand the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant in their uh, context. So the Abrahamic covenant we talked about it contained all of these promises and blessings. Promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, but then you have to a- ask this question: Who are his offspring? Who are the offspring of Abraham? And we need to read this through a New Testament lens and not merely through the Old Testament. We need to read this through how the apostles, uh, as they are uh, inspired by the Spirit, how they would articulate who the offspring of Abraham are. And then also, not only who are the offspring, but how are the promises attained? Is it by biological descent? Is it on the basis of ethnicity? And so, again, through a New Testament lens, uh, we would see that is, uh, is not the case. And so, uh, I want to read a passage, I think it's in your notes, Galatians 3:15 through 4:7, which says, uh, Paul writes, "To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So we have here some of the language of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. Now notice this, we've, we've hinted at this passage, we've mentioned this passage a number of times. This is one of the most important theological passages in the New Testament for understanding covenants. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. What he's just said there, there is one heir. If you want to know who is the offspring of Abraham, when the Old Testament makes promises to Abraham and to his offspring... The uh, New Testament authors do not read that uh, and say that every descendant of Abraham uh, biologically is Israel. They say there is one who is the offspring. There is one to whom all the promises are made, and that is Jesus Christ. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So the Mosaic covenant does not annul the Abrahamic covenant, is what he's saying there, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Remember in the context, the guardian there is the law. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither uh, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also... When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has spent, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through uh, God. And so we will spend uh, the rest of our time this morning really kind of uh, working through this, although we won't work through it exegetically, we'll work through the, the, it conceptually uh, as we walk through it. And so what we see here is who are the offspring? In order to understand why there is this necessity of this new covenant, we need to understand who are the offspring that uh, were promised uh, this inheritance. And according to this passage, there is one offspring, and that is uh, Jesus Christ. And then those who are heirs with him are those who are uh, sons of Abraham through faith, not through familial descent, not biology but belief, not ethnicity but election, not genealogy but grace, all of these sorts of things. So who are the offspring? Uh, the offspring, there is one singular offspring, and then those who are united to that one singular offspring. And then uh, how do you attain the promises that are given, not through adherence to the Mosaic law, but rather on the basis of believing uh, God's promises, that Jesus is faithful, He is the one heir, and so by faith in Him, we are uh, co-heirs with Him. So let's talk a little bit about the law, and, uh, and so ask this question, what is the law uh, good for? The law is good for something, Romans 7, 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We talked about this a little bit uh, as we talked about Mosaic law. Uh, so there are a number of benefits of the Mosaic law. In particular, it imprisons everything under sin. We just saw that so that there would be uh, seen to be this need for redemption, this need for forgiveness, this need for justification, this need for salvation. So one of the things that the law is going to do is it's going to imprison mankind under sin. It's going to reveal the sinfulness uh, of sin. So this past week, we took our little girl in for a CAT scan to check on the, the, the blood clot. Well, the law is kind of like this CAT scan. It just reveals this terminal sickness of sin uh, so that we would cry out for healing. The, the law doesn't actually accomplish that healing. The law doesn't actually accomplish salvation, just like a CAT scan doesn't ultimately accomplish any, uh, anything for Larkin. We give her multiple CAT scans. It doesn't actually help her. It probably actually ends up hurting her because she'll just get radiation or whatever it might be. And so that's one of the benefits though, of the law is that the law is intended to imprison everything under sin so that we would recognize our need for uh, salvation. Another benefit of the law is that it gives us this shadows it provides for us these sort of shadows that we'll see fulfilled in the new covenant 
And uh, so we'll talk about that in uh, a little bit. But in particular, the shadow of sacrifice. So Abraham receives promises, but there's nothing in the, the Abrahamic covenant itself that points to atonement. There's little hints that you see as you continue on with the, uh, the Abrahamic story. You see the offering up of Isaac and that kind of stuff, but there's nothing in the actual Abrahamic covenant itself that tells mankind how in the world this just God is going to justify sinful people. And, uh, and so what it does, though, what we see in the Mosaic Law is we see this sort of uh, shadow of there to be uh, this need for sacrifice in order for atonement uh, to, be, uh, to be made. And so we see that in the Mosaic Covenant, in the law, we see that the Abrahamic Covenant can't come about without atonement, without sacrifice, without uh, blood. And, uh, and so that's the second thing that it's good for, showing us this picture of the necessity of sacrifice. And, uh, and then the third thing that we talked about is that the, uh, the law is going to show us that there is ultimately one and only one faithful offspring that to the Mosaic law, in a sense, was impossible for mankind to fulfill. Because of the sinfulness of mankind, it was impossible for him to perfectly fulfill all of the obligations, uh, which uh, points to the fact, again, that there is only one who is the true heir. There is only one who is uh, the faithful uh, and obedient uh, son. And so uh, we see, again, that uh, our inheritance is not on the basis of our genetics. It's not on the basis of our ethnicity. It's not on the basis of our biological descent or any of these things. It's on the basis of God's grace. And, uh, and so those are some of the things that uh, we see. So the law is good. It's good for all of these purposes. But the, the, at the same time, the, the, the authors of the New Testament are going to have some very strong words for those who would use the Mosaic law in a way that it's not uh, intended to, to be. Uh, that the, the authors of the New Testament will have some really strong words for those who think that it's useful for salvation, for those who think that it's useful for justification, for forgiveness, uh, for ultimate redemption, these sorts of things. Again, you can use a CAT scan to reveal uh, the presence of a blood clot, to reveal the presence of cancer, to reveal something like that, but you can't actually use it to cure that thing. In fact, if you try to use it to cure that thing, it's only going to make it worse. And so the law is good for certain things, but it's not good when it comes to the uh, area of purchasing or uh, creating a context for Salvation. So the author of Hebrews in particular is going to use really strong language to critique the law. And uh, the reason is because in the context of the book of, uh, of Hebrews, there are these believers. They are people who are uh, ethnically Jewish. They've come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And then because of increasing persecution that you see in the context of the book of Hebrews, they are tempted now to depart from Christianity and go back to Judaism where there is less persecution. And uh, so there's this temptation for them to go and yoke themselves back to Jewishness, yoke themselves back to the Jewish law. And, uh, and so the author of Hebrews is going to have some very strong language. Again, the law is good, but if you try to use the law as a means of justification, then the Bible is going to strongly critique that. It doesn't critique the law in and of itself, but crit critiques the law as a means of salvation, a means of justification. These are some of the things that the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 7, 18 through 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
Hebrews 8, 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Hebrews 8, 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing, and growing old is ready to vanish away. In Hebrews 10, 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And... Uh, and so, it's kind of like if you've ever seen the movie Jurassic Park, they engineer these dinosaurs, and there is an intentional, I think it's, uh, I don't know, thiocin or something, some sort of genetic disorder in them so that they're not able to, uh, to populate uh, themselves. They're not able to breed and have other dino babies or whatever. And, uh, and so, uh, now the, the point of the, the movie is that they actually figure out a way anyway. But uh, the analogy is, likewise, God has embedded into the Mosaic Law an intentional deficiency, an intentional weakness, uh, so that it would lead ultimately to this fruition, to the one who would ultimately uh, fulfill it. And so there's these fatal flaws in the Mosaic Covenant, pointing to the necessity of a new covenant. Uh, A few of the fatal flaws that we see, that the high priest could regularly offer animal sacrifices, but could never fully and finally secure forgiveness. Hebrews 10.4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So there's this constant cycle of sacrifice. But because what is offered could never actually atone for sin, there is this need for it to be never-ending. There's this never-ending cycle of sacrifice. Another deficiency in the law is that the law uh, could never supply the power that was needed to fulfill it. The law gives commands, but it doesn't give the power to fulfill those uh, demands, uh, those commands. And so it's in the new covenant that we see this uh, empowering where God doesn't merely write the, the law on uh, letters of stone, but he writes it on the human heart, which is what we need. We don't just need an external law. We need an internal law. We need our hearts to be changed. And, uh, and so the law makes demands, but it doesn't supply the power. And then the last sort of fatal flaw embedded in the Mosaic Covenant by God is that it was temporary. It was, it was built with this built-in obsolescence that uh, God never intended for the Old Covenant to last forever or to be the final revelation of His will for uh, mankind. In fact, Hebrews will use the language of this as kind of a copy and shadow of heavenly things. But ultimately, what those things are doing is they're pointing forward to the resolution uh, in the heavenly thing itself, which is the new covenant that we see uh, in Jesus. And so, let's see the language that the Old Testament uses of a new covenant. And so, uh, this isn't just something that we see in the New Testament. This is something that's prophesied even in the Old Testament. And so, let's look at a few places where we see that. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is probably the most uh, important or most uh, uh, well-known of those. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We'll uh, comment on that in a little bit. 
Ezekiel 11, 19 through 20, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 36, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. These are probably the three biggest passages that point to this future uh, new covenant that is going to be uh, given that we see fulfilled in, uh, in Jesus. But there's a number of other passages that would speak of an everlasting covenant or a covenant of peace or uh, this other coming covenant. Uh, and so, but uh, these are again, uh, probably the most uh, famous. So let's move on from the Old Testament into the New Testament and see some of these, and then we'll give comments uh, on these. So in a sense, you could say the entire New Testament is about the New Covenant. In fact, uh, the word testament is from the Latin word testamentum, which is a word that means covenant. And so uh, Old Covenant, New Covenant is really what Old Testament and New Testament uh, uh, mean. And so in a sense, you could say that the entire New Testament is about the New Covenant, but there are a number of passages that speak specifically of that. Luke 22, likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, Jesus takes it and saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the New Covenant in my blood. Matthew 26, a similar sort of idea. We won't read that because it's just a parallel passage. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, uh, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Again, pointing to that sort of difference between external law and internal law. Hebrews 7.22 that we've read before, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews 9.15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance as the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Uh, Hebrews 8.16-13, this is a big one. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, this is a a quotation of uh, the uh, new covenant there in the Old Testament, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. And then Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of uh, Abel. So let's uh, expound upon this. We've just read some passages now that talk about, either prophesy uh, of this or speak of it uh, coming to fruition in Jesus. 
so let's expound a little bit upon this new covenant. What is so new about the new covenant? Well, there's a number of similarities between the new covenant and the old covenant. In particular, whenever the Bible's talking about the old covenant, again, there are a number of old covenants, but in particular, it's contrasting with the Mosaic covenant uh, in particular. And so there are a number of similarities between the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Uh, one of the similarities, they're on the same basis, the grace of God. Again, all of these covenants are God's gracious response to sin. So that's a similarity, that they are both uh, uh, built upon the grace of God. They have a similar purpose, we saw. In the Mosaic Covenant, there is this purpose to make an assembly of priest kings, a, uh, a priesthood of kings, a, a kingly priesthood, these sorts of things for the glory of God. We see that in the New Covenant as well. So that's another similarity. They're both initiated by blood. Uh, they both contain these uh, sort of embedded sacrifices in them. In the Mosaic Covenant, it's ongoing, continuous sacrifices. In the New Covenant, there is once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then another similarity is they both have ethical and moral implications, that there are certain, there's a law that is associated with them. The Mosaic Law and then the law of Christ, the law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as uh, yourself, which is the fulfillment of the law according to the New Testament. So these are some of the similarities. They have the same basis, the grace of God, similar purpose to make a nation uh, of uh, king priests. They're both initiated by blood and sacrifice, both have ethical and moral implications. But at the same time, there's also these glaring dissimilarities uh, between uh, the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. There is continuity, but there's also this element of discontinuity between uh, the covenants. In particular, in the New Covenant, we see that there is a better mediator. There's a better mediator who is Jesus himself. In the Mosaic Covenant, the mediator there is, in a sense, it's uh, Moses, and he is speaking, he is, uh, speaking with God on our behalf. Uh, in the New Covenant, it's Jesus, who is God himself. Not just one who is speaking to God for us, but God himself who is speaking with his Father on our behalf. And so there is a better uh, mediator. Hebrews 8, 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. Than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Hebrews 9, 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant. In, uh, in Pauline theology, it says there is now one mediator between God and man, uh, the man Jesus Christ. And so there is a better mediator between the two covenants. There's also a better sacrifice between the covenants. We saw that, uh, I've mentioned that a number of times, that there is this cycle, this consistent, continuous loop, this infinite cycle of sacrifice in the Mosaic covenant. And that's necessary because the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sin. Ultimately, we need a human to offer a sacrifice, and so we see this better sacrifice in the, uh, in the new covenant. And, uh, and so there is this language in Hebrews 9 through 10, which I won't read the whole thing. You can, uh, you can read that there. It's in your uh, notes. But there's this language here. These sacrifices are shadows, and they point to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is a substance. These sacrifices are the shadows. They're pointing forward to the day when there would no longer be the need for continuous sacrifice. The, the fact that there are continuous sacrifices points to the fact that it's not effectual. It's like uh, making payments on a house. You continue to make payments on the house as long as you have not paid off the house. But the moment you've paid off the house, you no longer make payments. 
That's what's happening here. You have to continue to make sacrifices as long as sin isn't actually atoned for. But the moment that sin is actually atoned for, you no longer need the necessity of these ongoing sacrifices. So there's a better sacrifice. That's a dissimilarity between the Mosaic and the New Covenant. There's a better covenant community. This is a really important one. Uh, the, the church versus uh, Israel. There's this distinction that exists between the two. In the Mosaic Covenant, to be in covenant with God, you didn't actually have to be a believer. There were a number of people within Israel that weren't believers. That's why there's this always, this constant refrain throughout the Old Testament of a remnant. There's this remnant within Israel. There's an Israel within Israel. There's a physical Israel, and then there's a spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel are the people who actually believed in Yahweh, the people who actually trusted uh, in the Lord uh, God. But there was also ethnic Israel who was, in a sense, in covenant uh, with God as well. You just had to be an Israelite to be in covenant with God uh, in the Mosaic law. The son of a, uh, of a Jew was a Jew, but the son of a Christian is not necessarily a Christian. We're not born into Christianity as you're born into a uh, relationship with, uh, uh, with God in the Mosaic Covenant. You're born into covenant with God in the Mosaic Covenant. That is not the case in the uh, New Covenant. We're not born into this. We're reborn into this. This is the importance of the doctrine of regeneration. And so there is no remnant within the, uh, within the body of Christ. To be a member of the covenant community now means that you love and trust Jesus. You love and trust the Father. Again, there is no sort of ethnic church and then spiritual church. There's no remnant within the church. Everybody who is a member of the true church, obviously there could be uh, false uh, pretensers and so, so forth, uh, within any individual local church, but to be actually a member of the body and, and uh, bride of Christ, uh, you are regenerate. And uh, so one of the places we see this, and we'll really talk about this next week as we talk about uh, pedo-baptism, is in Jeremiah 31. I want to go back to that. We read it earlier, but I think it's really important to understand. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, you should have it in your notes. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, look at these next four words. Not like the covenant. Not like the covenant. There is this discontinuity. There's this dissimilarity. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. This is the context here. Mosaic covenant when they're brought out of the land of Egypt. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And then he articulates how it's not like the covenant. So the passage itself, don't just... Don't just say, well, it's not like it, but we don't know how it's not like it, or fill in the blank with whatever you think might be a dissimilarity. Uh, Jeremiah is going to tell us how it's unlike the Mosaic Covenant. This is how it's unlike the Mosaic Covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Again, no longer is it on tablets of stone only. It's written on our hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, you cannot be... Uh, just sort of ethnic Israel. You have to be spiritual Israel. You can't be an ethnic member of the church. You have to be a spiritual member of the, uh, of the church. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. In other words, there is no uh, need for evangelism to unbelievers within the church. We evangelize each other. We share the gospel with each other. We encourage each other with the gospel. But you never share the gospel with a lost member of, a, uh, of the universal church. There is no such thing as a lost member of the universal church. Again, there can be lost members in any individual church. But actually to be a member of the body and blood, uh, the body and bride of Christ means that you are regenerate. No longer shall there be this teaching that says, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, every single one, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And so, by the way, if you grasp this that we just talked about, if you grasp this, the entire case for paedo-baptism unravels. We'll talk about that next week. That's what we're going to spend all of our time next week talking about is the difference between believer's baptism, which we get to celebrate uh, later this morning, and, uh, and paedo-baptism, the baptism of infants. So if you've ever wondered why has most of church history practiced uh, infant baptism, why do most other denominations practice infant baptism, all of those sorts of things, then uh, come uh, next week and we'll kind of unravel those things. But really, if you understand this passage and the implications of it, it completely is going to um, destroy the argument for infant baptism. Uh, so that's the third thing. It's a better covenant community. Fourth, there's better provision in the new covenant. Better provision in the new covenant. That is the provision of the Spirit. That the new covenant is this divine response to the perennial problem of hard-heartedness. That the new covenant is this divine response to the perennial problem of human hard-heartedness. Deuteronomy 10.16 God declares, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. But in Deuteronomy 29, you see, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. There is this command in Deuteronomy 10 that says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. The irony there is the only way that you could actually carry out this command is if God has actually already circumcised your heart. And, uh, and so there's this irony. Again, it's, he, he's making commands, but he's not empowering his people um, to fulfill all of those uh, commands. And so there's this promise in Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. We said this a number of times, but there was this old uh, uh, pneumatic device that's uh, pneumonic device that's run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So kind of what Red Bull does for Zach, that's what the gospel does for Christians. It empowers us to obedience. It uh, is what uh, fills us. It, it's what takes this law that's written on external tablets and embeds it into our hearts and uh, empowers uh, us. So he doesn't merely give us the law in the new covenant. He enables us to keep uh, the law. What's written on stone is now written on hearts. And our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh that are empowered by the Spirit of God himself. So there's better provision in the new covenant. And there's better promises that are made in the new covenant. Better promises that involve forgiveness and a new heart. And so in the story of the Exodus, we see how you can get God's people out of Egypt, but how in the world do you get Egypt out of God's people? 
in the story of the exile, the return uh, of, uh, of Israel from exile in Babylon, you see how God can get his people out of Babylon, but it's not until the new covenant that you see how God can get Babylon out of his uh, people. And, uh, and so you see this aspect of expansion within the new covenant that, uh, that's going to help us to see how we read the Bible is really critical for us. In a sense, we are to read it backwards. In a sense, we read it backwards. We read the New Testament, and we read that back upon the Old Testament, not the other way around. There are a number of people that I've met who read the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament. No, you read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament as God's later, fuller, final revelation of His plans and His promises. And, uh, and so when we do that, we see expansion. No longer are God's promises just simply to an ethnic people, Israel. God's promises have now expanded to include Gentiles of, uh, as well, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. There's this expansion from one ethnic people, one of the smallest peoples on earth, when God first calls them unto himself or actually creates them. And uh, there's this expansion so that his glory would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. No longer is this promise only for a particular plot of land, 100 miles by 20 miles or whatever it might be that the, uh, that the land of Israel is, that now God's promise is going to be for the entire earth, that the righteous shall inherit the earth, not just this one little plot of land. No longer is the promise long life in the land, which is the language of the Mosaic Covenant uh, that we see over and over and over again, is that there's going to be this promise that God would give His people long life in the land. In the New Covenant, what do we see? Not long life, but what? What's an expansion of that? Eternal life. Eternal life. And not in this one little land, but on this new created uh, new heavens and new earth. And so God has expanded His promises. It doesn't mean that He hasn't kept His promises. He has kept His promises. He's just expanded them. Think of uh, like Larkin's birthday is coming up in a few weeks, and let's say that I promise that I'm going to give her a uh, tricycle. And then her birthday comes, and I give her a tricycle, but I also give her a playhouse, and, uh, and I give her a stuffed animal and a million other things. Have I been unfaithful to my promises? No. I've given her everything I've promises, and I've simply expanded that. That's what God does in these promises. In these promises, we see a shadow, and then in the, in the light, we see all the more brilliantly uh, the blessings that God has poured out upon His people. So we shouldn't read this Old Testament as if it's flat. We should see that there is going to be this fulfillment that's going to expand everything all of God's promises, when read through the New Testament, are even greater than they seem through the lens of the Old Testament. And, uh, and so we talked a little bit about this imagery of shadow versus uh, substance. And if you can grasp this concept, the entire Bible really opens up uh, before you as it never has uh, before. So I want to talk a little bit about shadow and substance. We get these words from Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this, again, becomes a grid for reading the entire Bible that the Old Testament is going to provide shadows and the New Testament is going to provide substance. That's not in any way to denigrate the Old Testament. It's just to recognize the context of the Old Testament and to put it in relationship to the New Testament. We have to read the Bible 
by saying this is better than this. That's what Hebrews has said, that this is better. This is final. This is decisive. This is preparatory to get us to understand uh, this. And so uh, this becomes this sort of uh, hermeneutical grid for the way that we interpret and understand. Uh, So we see similar things, not only in Colossians 2, but Hebrews 5, which says that uh, various aspects of the Mosaic law serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent of the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Hebrews 10.1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So I want you to think for a second about some of the differences between a shadow and the actual fulfillment or the substance of that shadow. Think about some of the inherent qualities of a uh, shadow. So shadows move depending upon where the light is in relation to it and where you are in relation to it, but a substance doesn't change. Substance doesn't change if you shine light on it from a different angle or whatever it might be. It remains the same. A shadow is something that's always going to be shifting to some degree. A shadow eventually dissipates. At some point, there is no shadow when there is no light or whenever light is in a certain direction. There is no shadow that is cast, whereas substance is going to remain. Shadows are somewhat unclear. You can tell the difference between if a car is coming or a person is coming when you see a shadow, but you probably can't tell the difference between two different people unless they are drastically different. You probably tell the difference between me and Tim. He's real tiny. But beyond that, you couldn't tell. Obviously, there is this sort of aspect in which a shadow is inherently unclear, whereas the substance is going to be more clear. That is the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Shadow versus substance. Shadow says that God desires to cultivate the earth and to be a light for all the nations and that His glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the substance reveals how that's happening uh, in Jesus and through His church. And uh, and so, in a sense, what you have is uh, the glorious light of new creation, which is the purpose uh, to which all things are pointed. God's light of new creation is pointing backwards fixing upon the substance of Jesus and casting all of these shadows uh, backwards. That's what's going on here. And uh, and so Jesus is this uh, resolution and fulfillment to all of these shadows that we see here. He is the better Adam, the better Noah, the better Abraham, the better Moses, the better David. And so we should have this Christocentric approach to the Bible or a Christotelic telos is a Greek word that means end or purpose. This uh, Christ is the purpose. He's the end. He's the resolution of the Old Testament. So as we read the Bible, we should have this Christocentric or Christotelic way of reading the entire thing. We saw this before in Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Consider the implications of that. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. There is no other place that they find their yes except for in Jesus. And there is no other person in whom they find their yes except for Jesus. 
Luke 24, 27, Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. And then later on in that passage, verses 44 and 45, Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. John 5, 46, Jesus is speaking. He says, If you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for He wrote of Me. So the New Testament authors have this Christocentric, this Christotelic way of reading back the Old Testament. They see this fulfillment, resolution of everything in uh, Jesus Christ. And so, again, this is the, the point of the book of Hebrews, which is one of the reasons why you see such the, the clear dissimilarity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in the book of Hebrews. There's this increasing contextual pressure uh, and persecution that uh, Jewish Christians are experiencing. And so there's this pressure for them to apostatize, to renounce Christ, to go back to full Judaism, to yoke themselves to the Mosaic law. And so the entire book is written as an apologetic to the superiority, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so the author is going to say this, by whom? So you want to go back to the Old Testament. By whom did God speak to the prophets in the Old Testament? The answer is angels. And so in chapter 1, he shows Jesus is superior to the angels. Why go back if Jesus is superior to the angels? And then later on in chapter 2, to whom did God speak through the angels? He spoke to the prophets. Well, Jesus is the great prophet. He's greater than all the other prophets. And who was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament? Moses. And in chapter 3, the author of Hebrews says Jesus is greater than Moses, as greater as the, uh, the owner of the house is uh, versus the steward or the servant of the house. And what did Moses receive from God? The law, and Jesus is a better law. And what did the law establish? The Mosaic covenant, and Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant in chapter 8. And what office did the law institute? The priesthood. And in chapter 4, the author says, well, Jesus is the better high priest. And where do the priests minister? In the tabernacle or in the temple? And Jesus is the better temple in chapter 9. And what do the priests do in the temple? Well, they offered sacrifices in chapter 10. It shows that Jesus is the better, the supreme, the superior sacrifice. And so since Christ is superior, why turn back? That's the entire message of the book of Hebrews. And that's the entire message, in a sense, of the entire New Testament, that Jesus is going to recapitulate the entire story of Israel. You see, Jesus isn't just an Israelite, although He is that. He is ethnically Jewish. He isn't just an Israelite. He is Israel personified. He is the personification of Israel. He is Israel. Again, if you're looking, who are the promises made? Their promises are not just made to Abraham and to all of these kids. They're made to one kid in particular, one offspring. He is the true Israel. Israel was called out of Egypt. Jesus is called out of Egypt as a child. Israel has 12 tribes. Jesus has 12 apostles. Israel's tested 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is tempted 40 days in the wilderness. Israel passes through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea. Jesus faces judgment at the cross. Israel passes through the Jordan River. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. Israel is given the law at Sinai. Jesus gives the new law at the Sermon on the Mount. Israel is fed with the bread in the wilderness. Jesus gives bread in the wilderness. In fact, Jesus would go so far as to say He is the bread in the wilderness. Israel's given the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. In fact, all the institutions, all the identity markers, all the festivals and events find their fulfillment in Him. 
All the offices of Israel, the prophet, the priest, the king. Jesus is the better prophet. He's the better priest. He's the better king. The tabernacle. Well, Jesus, it says of Jesus that the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, tented among us. The temple, this place where heaven and earth are to meet. Jesus is now where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the place where God and man are reconciled because he is the God-man himself. All of the events that we see throughout the, uh, the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus. The story of Adam, well, Jesus is tempted in the garden and he's put to sleep. And as he's asleep from his wounded side, his bride emerges. Joseph Well, Jesus is a beloved son who was rejected by his brothers but rises to rule over them and offers forgiveness for their betrayal. David and Goliath, we talked about that last week. Well, Jesus is the one who seems to be this lowly, unassuming future king who defeats this uh, seemingly invincible enemy for the sake of the people. The story of the Exodus, that the people of God are rescued from slavery to a powerful demigod. That's what Jesus does. He rescues us from spiritual slavery uh, to Satan. Jesus even uses this language. The, the New Testament uses this language of Jesus in Luke 9, 30-31. And behold, two men were talking with him, uh, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure there in Greek is exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. All the feasts like Passover. Jesus' death happens at Passover. He has the last supper there. The meat and the wine are the key aspects of the Passover meal. And Jesus institutes uh, the Lord's Supper where meat, his body, and uh, wine, uh, his blood are the key elements. 1 Corinthians 5 would speak of Jesus like this. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may... Be a new lump as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So you see, all that's whispered in the Old Testament is screamed in the New Testament with resolution in Jesus. So if you want to understand the new covenant, what you have to do is you have to understand Jesus, for he's the heir, he's the fulfillment, he's the resolution, he's the substance. So everything that the new covenant promises, it promises through relationship to him to be a participant in the Abrahamic covenant, you have to be attached to Abraham. To be a recipient of the new co- uh, covenant, you have to be attached to Jesus. So that is new covenant really quickly. Next week, we will talk about uh, baptism, the sign of the new covenant, and uh, kind of uh, distinguish between credo-baptism and paedo-baptism. But for now, I'm going to have Zachary come up, and we'll do some Q&A, spicy Q&A.